0: Read and hear more about important news and policy issues at ncpolicywatch.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. In a recent op-ed they co-authored for NC Policy Watch, advocates Christina Cowger and Joe Burton of the group's North Carolina Stop Torture Now and Peace Action detailed a list of hard and important truths about the 20-year U.S. occupation of Afghanistan that President Biden finally brought to an end last month. Among their conclusions, the occupation was avoidable, it alienated a large segment of the Afghan people, and in many ways left the nation worse off than it had been. Recently, I got a chance to sit down with Christina Calgar to learn more about these assessments, the lessons we should learn, and some of the steps we should take to make amends going forward. Well, Christina Calgar, welcome back to News and Views. Good to have you back with us.
1: Thank you very much, Rob. It's good to be here.
0: Lots of talk these days, of course, across the nation and the globe, indeed, about the aftermath of the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan, the end of its occupation. You and Joe Burton of the group Peace Action recently penned an op-ed for NC Policy Watch that brought some, I don't know, I think a somewhat different perspective to the discussion. You entitled the piece Value of Looking Backward. Can you talk to us a little bit at least about what motivated you to write it and why you chose that headline?
1: Well, we have been for years... Saddled with President Obama's statement made in about 2011, I think it was, that the nation was going to look only forward and not backward at what had happened under the Bush administration when the so-called War on Terror was launched. And the problem with looking only forward and not backward is that we fail to learn any important lessons from the, really the terrible things that have happened under the rubric of the war on terror. And those things fall both into the military and the intelligence camps. But really the true line, I would say, is the notion that somehow problems like terrorism can be resolved through military means.
0: You explain in your essay that really even the original U.S. occupation of Afghanistan was actually avoidable. And talk to us about how that was the case, why that's become your assessment.
1: It's really not just my assessment or our assessment. The New York Times has reported (laughs) out in 2002, 2001, 2002, after the United States invaded Afghanistan and attacked the al-Qaeda stronghold there, uh, took over the country, essentially. The Taliban was basically on its knees militarily and communicated to the U.S., to the Bush administration, that it was ready to negotiate a a deal which would essentially amount to its surrender and possible inclusion in a broad government for Afghanistan. And the Bush administration said, absolutely no, Donald Rumsfeld said we don't negotiate a surrender. So at that point, the bloodlust was high and the desire for military revenge essentially took over and prevented people from realizing what the consequences of that would be, which were then an occupation of Afghanistan that went on and on and on and uh, had terrible consequences, both for the people of Afghanistan and for U.S. troops who were forced to fight there.
0: In the essay, you touch on some of the points regarding what the occupation was really like, what it's really brought to the country. I think a lot of Americans, many Americans, have have just grown up with uh, occupation of Afghanistan as just being the reality of life. And they may not even have thought much about what was there before, what has happened in those 20 years, what the country looks like today, what ultimately was the cumulative impact of the occupation. And You're not very positive on that.
1: No, I think obviously the reality is very complicated and it depends a great deal whether you're in an urban area or a rural part of Afghanistan. And there's been some excellent reporting of late about how rural populations there have been antagonized by the U.S.'s military tactics, whether it's U.S. forces or CIA-led strike teams that break down people's doors in the middle of the night drone attacks on rural villages that indiscriminately kill civilians, as well as possible Taliban fighters. People in the rural areas, and and we've been hearing lately how they have welcomed the departure of the United States because it brings a measure of peace. So in Kabul, obviously, there's an educated population, women's rights, women's ability to attend uh, school and work Uh, is a is a huge issue, a huge problem. And there's no denying that. But I think for the majority of the population, which is rural and is extremely poor, the end of the war has been, you know, a gift in that it brings the possibility of
0: peace. You know, obviously, one part of the invasion of Afghanistan, the occupation, is that it was The U.S. included that really in its so-called war on terror and in its use, as you've documented previously with your organization, Stop Torture Now, the use of torture against people deemed to be enemy combatants or uh, terrorists. Can you shine a little light on that and what's been going on there?
1: Right. Yeah. So Afghanistan has been, you know, sort of ground zero for the U.S.'s torture policy, uh, kind of along two parallel tracks. For one thing, the prison at Bagram Air Force Base has been throughout the U.S. occupation there an international symbol of human rights abuse and torture and torture to death in some cases. There are well-documented instances in which U.S. troops operating that prison at Bagram tortured at least a couple of people to death and brutalized hundreds more. So that was, of course, under the Pentagon. Now, the CIA used Afghanistan for not one, not two, but four separate black site prisons. These are secret prisons where CIA operatives and contractors held what they deemed to be high-value detainees, or in some cases, detainees of indeterminate value. But these were people who were disappeared into this sort of global gulag of CIA prisons. And torture techniques were used on them there that were sold to the CIA as a program by two Air Force interrogators back in 2001 who said, Well, we need to induce learned helplessness in these people. So um, here's how we'll do it. We'll strip them naked. We'll subject them to prolonged stress positions, extremes of heat and cold. We'll keep them permanently in the dark 24 hours a day, subject them to loud, eerie music and sounds of jet airplanes taking off. You know, the list goes on and on. And then eventually some of these people were sort of disgorged from this secret CIA network of prisons into Guantanamo or even released back out. But there's never really been an accounting for what the CIA has done to people. We know that 220 or so Afghans have been through the Guantanamo system, which of course is a a Pentagon-operated prison. And surely the fact that Guantanamo has held all these Afghans and continues to hold some Afghans in the 39 prisoners who are still there is is a factor in shaping how Afghans think about the United States. The fact that prisoner abuse took place on Afghan soil, that the U.S. presence meant Uh, abusive conditions there, whether they were in a public prison or secret prisons, and the fact that Afghans got shipped off to this offshore prison at Guantanamo. None of this is lost on the people of Afghanistan.
0: There's obviously been a lot of hand-wringing and criticism that's been directed at the Biden administration for their decision ultimately to just cut their losses and decide that this uh, occupation of this country going on indefinitely and to finally uh, withdraw. Where now? Where do we go from here? What are some of the lessons we should take and how do we avoid making mistakes like this in the future?
1: Right, these are the big questions. And I think what we first need to do is acknowledge the terrible costs and that how how deeply and tragically wrong this uh, so-called war on terror has been in its assumption that we can subjugate what essentially are, you know, majority Muslim nations to U.S. military domination as a way of eradicating terrorism from the world. That just has not turned out to be the case. In Afghanistan, $2.3 trillion later, what could those funds have bought for the people of North Carolina in terms of better living standards, better education, freedom from college debt, better health care? You know, that's why it matters to North Carolinians that our government has expended all these funds fighting basically a lost cause war in Afghanistan. We need to learn that lesson that cannot solve problems of this complexity, primarily with military means. We should not be engaged in the business of so-called nation building. The United States does a terrible job of running other countries' lives after it has invaded and occupied them. It's wrong and, and it's costly.
0: Talk to us about North Carolina, Christina, and maybe some lessons that we should take here and as it relates to our state's unfortunate and very specific involvement in some of this failed war on terror and indeed torture in many instances.
1: Yeah, North Carolina is really centrally involved in the war on terror and particularly through the CIA. You know, starting in 2001, the Bush administration really morphed the CIA very strongly into a paramilitary organization and one that went into the prisoner, kidnapping and secret detention business. And North Carolina's public airports hosted aero contractors, the CIA proprietary, which uh, was a huge part of the aviation component of this global gulag of secret prisons, flying kidnapped prisoners from site to site where they could be interrogated using torture and totally beyond the reach of the Red Cross lawyers or the media. So that went on for many years. And unfortunately, you know what we have to do now, we have to learn the lesson that North Carolina should not be in the business of facilitating kidnapping for human rights abuse. Our state leaders, Josh Stein and Roy Cooper, However, steadfastly refused to acknowledge what the state has been doing in that regard. And so Arrow continues to operate with impunity.
0: I believe Congressman David Price, though, has been someone who's spoken up on this issue so to some extent.
1: Yes, he has. Uh, Representative Price has said that we need to account for what has happened in the U.S. torture program. Recently, he was a leader of a letter that 75 members of the U.S. House of Representatives signed urging President Biden to hurry and close Guantanamo prison which is a stain on the U.S. conscience and really uh, gives us, uh, you know, an international bad reputation. So Representative Price has really played an important role there.
0: Coming to the end of our conversation with Christina Cowger, who's the coordinator of the grassroots organization, North Carolina Stop Torture Now. You can learn more about them at ncstn.org. But I guess, Christina, the final question I would have is, and it's probably an unfair and overly broad question, but how should our nation best respond to the threat of what some describe as terrorism, obviously in some instances is terrorism. Is there an approach that we could bring that could be more effective than this notion of just invading other countries and trying to control them for decades on end?
1: So I think that had the United States approached the problem of alienation and poverty in Afghanistan with the mindset that, If people are educated and if support is provided for them to develop their own economies and educate their own people, provide health care to their own people, that if we had had that approach, surely the ground then is cut out from under people who want to convert folks to terrorism. I think the worst way to approach the problem of, of terrorism is to give people symbols of US brutality, such as Guantanamo Bay Prison, such as the prison at Bagram in Afghanistan, which only ends up recruiting more, more terrorists. So I think fundamentally the solution has to be to improve people's lives so that terrorism seems like the wrong response.
0: Christina Calgar is the coordinator of North Carolina Stop Torture Now. You can read about her organization and its work at ncstn.org, or you can just Google Stop Torture Now. You can also learn about their Uh, important investigation uh, into the whole issue of North Carolina's involvement in torture via something called the North Carolina Commission of Inquiry on Torture. That was some very important work the group did and published a big and important report back in 2018 uh, that shines more light on the failed approach that the United States has brought in so many instances to the war on terror. Christina, thanks for your very important work and for your insights. We appreciate sharing them with us, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again real soon. Thanks a lot, Rob. Great to be with you. Coming up next, the legislative and congressional redistricting process is underway in North Carolina. We'll hear from some experts about what's happening and why gerrymandering remains a big problem. Stay with us.